today we're going to watch Jesus begin to end his ministry in the region of Galilee. This is actually a time of transition in Mark's gospel. Geographically, in that Jesus is going to focus now more on going to Jerusalem and then his ministry in Jerusalem where he will die on the cross for the sin of the world, but also in that Jesus is going to more intentionally focus on his disciples. He had to prepare these men for the future ministry that he had called them to. They would be responsible in a sense for kickstarting the evangelization of all nations and the establishment of the church and the writing of scripture. They had a big job in front of them and so Jesus is trying now to prepare his disciples. Now often in starting a teaching, I'll look back at what came before, but today it's also appropriate to look forward to what's coming next. In our passage next week, Jesus is going to get alone with his disciples and ask them, who do others say that I am? And then he'll ask them, who do you say that I am? And Peter will speak in a sense for the group and confess, you are the Christ the right answer. But immediately following that correct answer, the disciples will be proven that they don't truly understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, their vision of Jesus is partial, partially correct at this stage. And so Jesus is going to focus on giving these men sight. And the reason why I'm bringing that up today is because this whole passage we're going to look at, these first 26 verses of the 8th chapter of Mark, are designed to help the disciples see more clearly. In fact, the final episode we'll look at today is the actual healing of a man who is blind. And he will be healed progressively. It's sort of an image, so to speak, of the progressive sight the disciples are getting during this season with Jesus. They know certain things about him, but they need to see him more clearly. And Jesus, in this episode and in the chapters to come, is going to focus on giving these men proper sight. So I'm going to try to draw out for you a handful of things from the text that Jesus wanted them to see about himself uh, so that they could be the men that he wanted and was calling them to be. And of course, these are things that you and I should want to be able to see about Jesus and apply into our own lives as well. So let's start off reading the beginning uh, episode, verse one through three of chapter eight. It says, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Now what Jesus is about to do is feed this massive group of people. And if this episode is sounding a little familiar to you, it's because in Mark chapter six, we already saw Jesus feed miraculously a crowd of 5,000 uh, people. Here, Jesus is going to feed 4,000 people. And there are 
a lot of similarities between this feeding and the previous feeding in Mark chapter 6. Both of them happened at a deserted setting. Both of them were precipitated or kick-started by Jesus' compassion on the crowd. And of course, Jesus in both of them took bread and fish and miraculously divided it in his hands and the disciples distributed it. And in both episodes, there was a vast amount of leftovers that the disciples collected. But there are some significant differences between these two stories as well. The number of loaves that they started with is different. The size of the crowd, 5,000 versus 4,000 is different. The type of people in the crowd are also different because most people regard this crowd in this story as a Gentile crowd on the outskirts of the Decapolis rather than a Jewish crowd on the shores near Capernaum. So, this now continues the theme of Jesus ministering to the Gentile world. But let's go on in the story, looking at verse 4 to verse 10. And his disciples answered him, answered Jesus, because he'd said, I have compassion on the crowd. He said, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, like I said, there are a lot of similarities between this episode and the previous episode where Jesus fed the 5,000, but there are some subtle differences. But there's one massive glaring difference as well, one detail that's held out in this portion, this feeding of the 4,000. And it's, it's the reaction of the disciples. Jesus comes to them, this crowd having followed him for three days now, not just one day like the previous crowd, for three days they followed him and he comes to them and he tells them, I have compassion on this group. It's one of the only times in Mark's gospel that the crowds are spoken of in any kind of positive light. They've remained with Jesus for three days. They've stuck with Jesus through the thick and thin. And Jesus tells them of his compassion, and the thing that stands out is that the disciples respond by saying, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I mean, for the reader, we've just gotten away from chapter 6 not all that long ago. For the reader, it's like you want to scream into the pages of the Bible to these disciples. What do you mean, how can this be done? It just happened just a couple chapters ago with a larger group than this group. What do you mean, how can this be done? How clueless are you guys? Don't you remember what Jesus has done? You see, even when you account for the passing of time from the first miraculous feeding to this one, 
And even if you account for this being a Gentile crowd that maybe the disciples thought Jesus would not want to minister to in that same miraculous kind of way, the disciples' density at this point is totally shocking. In fact, a lot of scholars have responded to the density of the disciples here by trying to say that what Mark was doing was retelling the same event with different terms. But the differences are too significant, and as we'll see in a moment, Jesus himself acknowledged that there were two separate events, two separate feedings. Jesus had already fed the 5,000, and these disciples, it seemed, were shocked to consider that Jesus could miraculously feed a crowd another time. But here's my question. Should we actually, should we really be shocked by the disciples at this point? In, in other words, don't we often do the same thing that these disciples did? Don't we often forget the previous manifestations of the power of God in and upon our lives? Aren't we often capable of displaying the same density, the same fears riling us up over and over again, the same sensitivities being brought up over and over again. We bring the same shortcomings so often, the same fragilities so often to Jesus over and over again. So to me, I'm not very shocked that these disciples were uh, befuddled at what, how Jesus would deal with this large crowd. But let's consider one of the most significant differences between this feeding miracle and the last. When Jesus fed the 5,000, it was the disciples who approached Jesus. Here, with the feeding of the 4,000, it's Jesus who approaches the disciples. And he approaches them after three days of the crowd following. For three days, the disciples were silent about ministering to and serving this crowd. Whereas with the 5,000, on the first day, they came to Jesus and said, this crowd is going to get hungry. And when Jesus approached the disciples, I want you to go back to verse 2 and see what he said. He said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. You see, Mark has portrayed the crowd as fickle up to this point, but here they are allegiant to Jesus. And this is the first thing that I think Jesus wanted them to see and wants us to see as well. It's very simple. Jesus's compassion. Jesus's compassion. You see, when Jesus saw this crowd, he was moved, he says, with compassion. And he told his disciples about the compassion. And the interesting thing is that after he told them about his compassion, he really didn't give them any instructions. He just told his disciples, this is how I feel about these people. There were no directions. There was no guidance. There was no impossible command. Instead, all Jesus gave them at this point was a little glimpse into his heart. You see, I think Jesus wanted his disciples by this point to be shaped by his compassion. You see, it's not hard to imagine how they could have responded to the revelation that Jesus cared for this crowd. They could have recalled how Jesus had compassion on the previous crowd, seeing them like sheep without a shepherd. They could have remembered how 
that compassion of Jesus manifested itself in the feeding of all those people. And they could have known how Jesus wanted to use them to help this crowd also be satiated. In other words, when the disciples heard that Jesus had compassion on this new crowd, they should have responded by saying, if this is how Jesus feels about these people, then we should serve these people. Let's get involved in Jesus's work. Let's live out the heart of Jesus. Now, of course, we know that we're called to be a compassionate people. We're to love God and we're to love our neighbor as ourself. But I find that compassionate love for the lost is often a hurdle for Bible-believing Christians. Partly because of our flesh. You know, our flesh doesn't like to serve. Our flesh doesn't like to lower itself to help others. But I think partly it's because of our love for the truth. You know, Christianity includes a set of doctrines and beliefs. The church, Paul said, is the pillar and the ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. He said that the word of truth must be rightly divided within the church. 2 Timothy 2.15. He said that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, competent, for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And he also said that the last days will be filled with deceptive teachings. And because of this, we are often quite understandably concerned about any slippage from the truth. You see, Jesus is right. The gospel is right. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by Jesus. So with sentiments like that as a backdrop, sometimes it's a hurdle for us to demonstrate the compassion of Christ to people who are wrong about Christ. People like this crowd. But the truth, the scripture, the veracity of the gospel does not need to be endangered by our compassionate love for others. When we obey the prime commandment to love God, we're protected from any possible error that could come through loving our neighbor. This is what Paul hopes for when he says that scripture can make God's people competent, equipped for every good work in 2 Timothy 3.17. The expectation is that we would learn the truth of God's heart as we look into his word and that his nature would turn us into people who love well. And the disciples should have looked into Jesus' heart. I have compassion on this crowd. And they should have then said, oh, we know what to do now that we've discerned how you feel about this group. You see, these disciples, they had a front row seat to learning about the compassion of Jesus. Jesus loved his followers and his friends, people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus loved fervent believers like John the Baptist. Jesus loved people battling illness like the woman with the perpetual flow of blood. Jesus loved single mothers who were slugging it out against the devil like the Syrophoenician woman we saw last week. Jesus loved fathers who desperately needed help in the raising of their sons or their daughters. 
Jesus loved business people like Zacchaeus and Matthew. Jesus loved people who turned to sexual escapades to escape the difficulties of life, like the woman caught in adultery. Jesus loved people battling covetousness, like the rich young ruler. Jesus loved skeptics, men like his own brothers. Jesus loved thieves, like the men on the cross. Jesus loved people engaged in witchcraft, like the demoniac in Gadara. And Jesus loved political leaders like Pontius Pilate and even Herod. And Jesus loved even Pharisees like Paul or Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. And as these disciples saw the love of Jesus, they should have applied it to their own lives as they deduced the very heart of God. This is one of the first things that Jesus needed them to get if he was going to be able to use their lives. He needed them to see, number one, his compassion. Well, let's go on in the story and see what happens next. Verse 11 It says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now, They had forgotten his disciples to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, here's a second thing that I think Jesus wanted his disciples to understand, not only his compassion, but number two, they needed to understand his style, his style of ministry, his style of Uh, messianic leadership, the style of his kingdom. And it starts here with this portion where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they want a sign from Jesus. And when they came to Jesus, this was not an honest inquiry. They were actually very hostile. I don't want you to miss that in verse uh, 11, 12, uh, verse 11 and 12. First, they come out to Jesus in verse 11. The word is what you would use to describe military men looking for or entering into war. Uh, They're there to argue with Jesus, it says in verse 11, disputing and opposing him. Uh, They didn't politely ask for a sign from heaven, but they were seeking to take one from Jesus in verse 11. And they tested him, which means that they were trying to trip him up, not trying to discover if he had merit or not. In other words, these men are being portrayed as having already decided about Jesus and they were there to prove their point. Now, of course, it strikes us as very ironic that the Pharisees wanted Jesus to perform a sign from heaven right after he miraculously fed 4,000 people. You know, like, did you not just see what happened? Here's the thing, though. They weren't just looking for a miracle like the feeding of the 4,000. They knew that Jesus was capable of those, but they wanted a sign from heaven, it says. This means they wanted a sign from God testifying to, verifying Jesus' identity. Here's what they didn't realize. Jesus' mere presence on earth at that time was a sign from heaven. God had become flesh, left heaven, stepped out of glory to be there in their midst, the very Son of God, there ministering to mankind. 
Now in Matthew's gospel, when these Pharisees say this to Jesus, Jesus responds by saying, no sign will be given to this generation except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So in one sense, Jesus did give them a sign. It's his resurrection. And I would encourage you as a Christian, get your hands on good material about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a massive linchpin for the Christian faith that if you can get that solid within your heart, it will stand with you during times of doubt and difficulty, remembering and knowing that the Christian faith that you are part of, it is true and legitimate. Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. But Mark doesn't get into that. Instead, he shows us how Jesus sighed deeply before rebuking their generation for seeking a sign. Uh, these men, what they were wanting was the wrong kind of Messiah. They wanted fire from heaven. They wanted the Romans banished. They wanted a new world order in place right now. But you see, there's a reason. There's a reason that Barabbas, the insurrectionist who wanted to overthrow the Roman government and Jesus swapped places on the day that Jesus was crucified. Barabbas wanted to change the world without the gospel, but Jesus submitted to the Roman authorities in order to die for the sin of the world. He knew that it would be his cross that ultimately changed humanity. He came for the cross, not to perform a sign from heaven like these Pharisees wanted. Now, when Jesus got alone with his disciples, he then warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees. And leaven in the Bible is often used as a picture of something evil that permeates the entire body, the, the entire congregation or the entire structure. Uh, here in the boat, Jesus warned his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees and then he also said of Herod as well there in verse 15. As much as Jesus wanted his disciples to watch out and beware of this leaven, I have to admit to you, it's, it's actually pretty difficult to put your finger on exactly what this leaven is that Jesus is warning his disciples about. It is obvious that the Pharisees were guilty of legalism and hypocrisy. And in fact, in Luke's gospel, in a different episode, Jesus said to his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, but what is the leaven of Herod then? And in Matthew 16, in the parallel passage to this, Jesus also warns them of the leaven of the Sadducees. What was the leaven of the Sadducees? Now, some people think that Jesus was warning about the legalism of the Pharisees, about the materialism of Herod, and about the liberal theology of the Sadducees. But perhaps all of these questions are answered for us when we consider where each camp converged when it came to Jesus. How were they similar? Sadducees, the Herodians, or Herod himself, and the Pharisees? Well, here's the thing. None of them believed. None of them believed in Jesus. None of them placed their faith in Jesus as the Christ. Disbelief for them was like a little leaven that just began to permeate 
and grow and grow within them. Slowly, their hearts were hardened, and now it seems almost impossible for them to turn and believe in Jesus. Even after he fed 4,000 people out in the wilderness with his bare hands, they could not believe, and they still looked for a sign. You see, the disciples, they needed to be shaped by Jesus. They needed to learn what kind of Messiah Jesus is and was. They needed to keep watch uh, out for this insidious version of unbelief that would keep them on the outside of the kingdom and on the outside of God's program. And this is often a problem today when a person looks at Jesus with expectations that are unbiblical, that aren't right, that are inaccurate. When you see Jesus in those inaccurate ways or have expectations of him that his word does not back up, well, you become disillusioned with him and eventually you do not believe in him. That's why it's so important to know his word, to know his promises, to know what he has said he'd be about so that you can know Jesus's style. Okay, let's conclude by looking at the last couple of episodes in our text. Verse 16, and they, the disciples, began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand or your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Okay, here's the third thing Jesus wanted them to see. They needed to see his power. They needed to see Jesus's power. You see, Jesus here had warned these disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they heard what Jesus said, and rather than apply his words, they began wondering if Jesus had said that to them because they'd only brought one loaf of bread on the boat with them. Uh, they assumed that Jesus was rebuking them for an oversight. Like, oh man, we had so many leftover baskets of bread after the feeding of the 4,000, we should have taken more into the boat. All we have is this one loaf of bread, okay? There they are with Jesus, the guy who can make bread in his very hands, and they're worried that they've only brought one loaf of bread with them in the boat. You know, I try so hard not to unnecessarily pick on the disciples, but sometimes they just make it so easy. I mean, this is just a boneheaded move from these disciples. Now, Jesus was aware of their response. He knew what they were thinking. And he obviously did not appreciate the way that they were thinking. Remember, these guys are being trained for the greatest mission in history. Their future work was all important. You could say in one sense that our very lives before God were in a sense dependent upon their allegiance and obedience to and faithfulness to the mission in those early years because the spirit broke out through them. The gospel then spread through, down through the generations, eventually to our lives today. And Jesus needed these guys to get it. 
He needed them to grow. He needed them to learn. The cross was coming. It was only a matter of time. So Jesus, hearing them talk amongst themselves and say, oh, he's talking to us like this because we only brought one loaf of bread. He just barrages them with inspective, introspective questions. He said, finally, at the end of all these questions, do you not yet understand? You see, the feeding of the five or the 4,000, it just hadn't come home for the disciples. Jesus' work had not saturated their minds. They were still unchanged. They still didn't understand. And on top of his miraculous feedings, there they were currently in the boat with Jesus. I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus has done some amazing things, miraculous things. Well, they've been in that very boat. And there they are with the bread maker, with the miracle worker, the one who calms the wind and the waves and walks on the water, the one in that boat with them. And there they are saying to themselves, it's because we didn't bring enough bread. You see, Jesus's past performance should have stimulated their current faith. This is always how God wants to work with his people, by the way. Remember when God delivered the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt? All of the plagues, the power of God, the strength of God, it was designed to help them grow in confidence that God would give them victory in the future. They should have been able to look at God's past performance and have been built up in confidence for the future thing he was going to do. But when they sent the 12 spies into the promised land to check it out and 10 of them came back and said, we can't defeat these giants in the land. It was a lack of applying what God had done in the past to their current situation. You see, we would all benefit from setting our minds on God's past care for us. Look, think of it, you guys. Sorrow has come into your life at so many different junctures, and yet here you are, you're still standing. Financial pressures have done their worst to try to disrupt your life, and you've gotten through. Sickness has come into your body, and you have endured. And temptations have assailed you, and still, in the midst of all of it, you're a recipient of God's grace. He keeps walking with you. See, Jesus' faithfulness in the past should help us endure even the current season that we're going through as a people. You know, obviously, as we look at our world, this has been a disorienting time that we've lived in and are currently living through. You know, months of sheltering in place, social upheaval, pressures have mounted. The world is in turmoil. And it's hard for believers at times to discern between the lies and the truth. And fears, oh man, fears so often overwhelm us. But what we have to do is recall the past faithfulness of God, even if we just have to go all the way back to the cross almost 2,000 years ago. His past performance should strengthen us for today. Listen, living in fear, it's no way to live. We have to be confident in the Lord, wise as serpents, gentle as doves, but bold as lions, believing in the Lord and trusting 
in him. At some point, you have to realize that he's been there for you before and will be there for you no matter what you endure today. Okay, let's end with the very last little episode, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Okay, this is another one of those interesting healings from Jesus. We saw the one that he performed last week for the deaf man, speaking sign language, so to speak, to him. This is another interesting healing uh, from Jesus. Another one also where he includes spittle in the process of delivering this man, which, like I mentioned last week, uh, some ancient cultures believed had medicinal value, especially if it came from a holy or a powerful person. So Jesus takes this guy aside privately and he heals him. But the significant detail that I wanted to point out to you is the progressive nature of this particular healing. This is the only healing that Jesus performed that we know of in the Gospels that occurred in stages. The first stage, his healing was enough that his vision was blurry and he said, I see men like trees walking, an indication that he'd not been blind his whole life. He knew what trees looked like. And he just says, you know, I can kind of see, I, I can tell that they're people, but they look blurry like trees, you know, moving around. Secondly, though, the second stage, after Jesus laid his hands on him again, he saw everything clearly. Now, like I said at the beginning of this teaching, everything in this passage and everything in this particular miracle has an emphasis on the giving of sight. In fact, in this brief little miracle, there are eight different Greek words that communicate vision that Mark uses. It's all about seeing. It's all about seeing. And as I said earlier, I think Mark's placing of this miracle right in this spot was intentional. In our next study, the disciples are going to confess Jesus as the Christ, but they will also make mistakes about how they understood Jesus's mission. Peter will infamously rebuke Jesus even for saying that he's going to suffer and go to the cross. It's like Jesus's disciples see Jesus partly, but Jesus is working hard to give them full vision so that they can see him correctly. And my prayer is that we would be a people who stay in the word, who stay in prayer, and who stay in fellowship and keep on learning about the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, the attributes of God, the word of God, so that we could see Jesus more correctly than ever before. May we see his compassion. May we see his style of ministry. And may we see his power more clearly than ever before.